Loved, cherished, comforted. Welcome to the podcast ministry of Our Resolute Hope, where you will find grace, not just a concept or a doctrine of grace, but a person, a person whose name is Jesus, a person who brings hope, a determined, resolute hope that can sustain you and empower you to live courageously in this fallen world. Join us now as we learn more about Jesus, our Savior, our Lord, and our life. Hello again, friends. Welcome back to the Our Resolute Hope podcast. I'm your host, John Russin, and I'm here again with my dear friend, Pastor Frank Friedman, and we welcome back to our virtual studio, our return guest, counselor, teacher, and author, Yolanda Cohen-Stith, who serves as executive director for New Heart Living. So Yolanda, Frank, thanks so much for being here with us today. Thank you. It's an honor to have you both. Frank, I see you all the time, so it's not quite as much of an honor, but it's still an honor. (laughs) Depreciating honor. (laughs) Well, to our listeners, if you heard the last episode, Michelada gave us a, a wonderful story describing her Jewish upbringing. She coined the term conservadox, which I found very engaging. And then again, dissatisfied with some of her religious hypocrisy at home, growing desire to know about God. She eventually headed on, on a cross-country trip, found herself in Rapid City, South Dakota, where she met Messiah Yeshua for the very first time. She talked about her struggles with the wayward child, the loss of a husband, thoughts of suicide, and all these were covered in her book, Valley Life. And so Yolanda is back with us today to sort of unpack some of those topics with us and what led her to a closer walk with the Savior as he took her not from but through the valley of the shadow of death uh, with the interaction with the struggles with her son, and with her husband. So Yolanda, uh, dear sister, thank you so much for coming back. And uh, ma'am, the floor is yours. Oh, wow. Okay. Thank you, John and Frank. The verse, Psalm 23, 4, which my book is based on, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. The word through is the operative word. Because we don't end up in these valleys in our lives and just languish there. They are temporary places and they're places of learning and growing. And sometimes, and I know for myself, some of my valley experiences felt like an eternity, like they were never going to end. And often I had to get to a place where I was just surrendered how much time and and the length of time that I would spend there and just trust God and really hold on to him and keep my focus on him while I'm there. So starting off by reciting that verse is important because I went through a lot of things in my life. But one of the things that I think was the most, not only catastrophic, but the greatest catalyst in my life to grow me and to bring me to a place of utter dependence on Christ was the valley that I walked through with my son. 
Now, today, Benjamin is actually turning 32 years old next month, which I can hardly believe. And there are nine years difference between my two kids. So I have one that is 41 and then Benjamin. And during those years between them, my late husband and I tried to conceive. And so we went through a a pretty painful valley just in that experience. But at the onset, I was praying one day, and I talk about this in Valley Life. We so wanted to have another child, and Rachel was about three years old. And we tried for about a year, and nothing was happening. And, you know, I'd have people praying for me and laying hands on me and prophesying and all this stuff. And it was very frustrating. And I just got to the place where I was done with it all. I had gone through several years of infertility treatments, but when we began trying, I I guess it was after the first year, I was praying one morning and reading my Bible and very specifically, the Lord said to me that I was going to have a son. Now, mind you, I thought I was going to have a son the conventional way, and that is nine months later. And that did not happen. So after, oh, I don't know, uh, maybe about six years or so, I surrendered it all to God because I had gotten to a place where getting pregnant and having a child was more important to me than my relationship with God. And I felt very convicted about that. And I had to shift my priorities. And so like Abraham laid Isaac on the altar, I laid my son, my promised son on the altar. And I told God that, that I loved him more than even the promise that he gave me that I would have a son, have another child. And, uh, and that was the end of it for me. And uh, not long after that, and I would say probably within three or four months, I found out I was pregnant and I was just overwhelmed with joy and the love of Jesus to uphold his end of the promise. It was, it was overwhelming for me. And I was, I, you know, I'd maybe been a believer about maybe 10 years or so. And I ended up losing that child. That was a very painful experience for many reasons. It was painful because I lost this child and this is the child that God had promised me. And it was painful because I was in Europe. We, li- we were living in England and I was in a British hospital and I had to deliver the baby vaginally and the baby was dead. And, uh, oh and I had to do it by myself. They wouldn't let my husband come into the room. And it was really horrifying to me. Of course, this was a long time ago. So I'm, I'm sure things have improved since then. And then I remembered that I've remembered God's faithfulness, that he promised me that I was going to have a son. And it wasn't that son. And so if God wanted to make good on that promise, then I don't need to worry about it. 
I just need to live my life. And so that's what I did. I just moved on. And six months later, I was pregnant again. And that child was my son, Benjamin. And he was born on June 16th, 1989. And I will just say this, he was not an easy baby. And I really think that the problem was in utero. It was a pregnancy, not at all like my first pregnancy with my daughter. And I had her by a, a cesarean section. And so my doctor and I talked about that. And I wanted to try to deliver Ben the conventional way with drugs, but the conventional way. So um, we did a trial labor. Well, I'd been in labor probably about 15 hours and my uterus ruptured. Now, I don't know how to describe what kind of pain that is, but if you could imagine somebody reaching inside of you and pulling out your organs and then just twisting you and tossing you around by those organs and imagine how painful that would be. It was crazy painful. And so when my uterus ruptured, I guess they were losing me, my heart rate dropped and they were losing me and my baby's heart rate dropped. And so they ended up doing an emergency C-section with him. I am convinced that when my uterus ruptured and through all that trauma, that there was some neuro damage for Benjamin. And so this was a child that could not be comforted. He cried a lot. By the time he was five years old, I took him to the doctor, convinced he was ADHD, and he absolutely was. And so raising this little boy who was diagnosed ADHD and also ODD, which is Oppositional Defiant Disorder, and yes, it's a real disorder, it was beyond my ability, just beyond me. And Ken and I did our best to love him and nurture him and direct his path. And I guess it was by the time he was eight years old, he was put on medication, which really made a huge difference. And for all of those mothers out there, and parents in general, but mothers specifically, if you have a child who, who's neurodiverse or has learning issues, what I call special kids, they don't think and process the way everybody else does. I empathize because it's not easy. Public school system is not set up to meet their needs. Society doesn't understand them. And so they end up really getting either shuffled around or falling through the cracks. So I think Ken and I did a really good job. He was a great father, very hands-on, and he and Ben played basketball. That was their passion, went fishing, and they did a lot together. And we were a close-knit family, and all was really working best it could up until high school. 
So the transition from middle school where he got all these concessions and all these helps and then to ninth grade high school in a huge high school where he got virtually no help, he was lost. And so he gravitated toward a peer group where he could fit in and feel accepted. And that's when he started using drugs. He was 15 years old. And what started out as just recreational, experimental, turned into a very serious drug habit and addiction. And that didn't happen overnight. That happened over a 10-year period. Things got progressively worse. When I found out he was using drugs, I didn't want to overreact. I mean, I used drugs back in the 60s and and early 70s before I became a believer. And he was smoking pot and, you know, we did have discussions about it and I was not happy and, and I was fearful. I was fearful because it was tapping into my own stuff and where this might go. And so I'm not sure I handled it really well. And I'm not sure how to have handled it really well, to be honest with you. My husband was at the time retired military. He was a a colonel in the Air Force. He served 26 years. His parenting style was do what I say to do. And if you don't, there's going to be consequences. And my parenting style was very similar because I was raised by my mother, who was very much of the same mindset. Children should be seen and not heard and, you know, do what I say or else. So we, we were stretched, to put it mildly, by uh, this child who was so challenging. Where was your daughter in all of this? I know she was older, mm-hmm. but that certainly throws a monkey wrench into the traditional leave it to beaver family dynamics that we all dream of growing up with. So how did this play out dynamically in your home? Yeah. You know, I think it was really hard for Rachel because, you know, she was the only child for nine years. She, we, she would mention this from time to time. We'd laugh about it and ha ha ha, you know, that her position as the favorite and the only child and in charge was usurped by this little person who basically sucked the life out of you. And our entire family including Rachel's life, revolved around Ben, trying to help Ben, trying to meet Ben's needs, trying to understand Ben, trying to make Ben happy. And so it was hard for her, but she loved her brother and she loved being the boss. So, you know, she, just like we did, she found her place and her role and they had a close relationship actually. And she was there for him throughout all those tumultuous years just to be a support if she could. But she was, you know, nine years older. She was going through her own stuff. Right. And she was already engaged to be married when he was getting into trouble at 15 and 16 and 17. So, yeah, it affected everybody in the family, not just... Ken and me. Right. So how did your 
your pastors, your churches, your, your spiritual shepherds, how do they manage this? Well, I think for the most part, everybody was very empathetic and loving. And I don't think they really, trying to think about the early years, don't think they really understood, probably just thought, you know, it's just a kid that's ADHD. And, you know, Ben was in trouble all the time. He was in trouble in Sunday school and he was in trouble at school, at public school. And, you know, it just became the norm. And I remember when he was in fourth grade, it was time for parent-teacher conferences. And I remember his teacher's name. Mind you, I don't remember much of anything, but I remember that teacher's name. And the reason is, is she loved my son. Her name was Mrs. Norville. And so I went in to see her and I sat down at, at her desk and she said, Mrs. Stith, I just want you to know, I think your son is so charming, so bright, so amazing. I just looked at her and I said, really? And she said, yes. And I said, well, you know, how's he doing? She said, I think he's doing great. I mean, his grades were good. And this is the only teacher that I ever got a positive review from. And I think a lot of it had to do with her because she wasn't trying to control him. She was trying to teach him and connect with him. And she brought out the positives in Ben of which there are a multitude. Uh, he's funny, he's engaging, he's articulate, he's loving, he's caring, so many wonderful things. But if somebody only focuses on the negative, they're not gonna see any of that. And then, so getting back to our spiritual leaders, we were involved in, in ministry for a long time. And so I think for the most part, the people who shepherded us and were spiritual mentors, you know, loved Ben. They loved him. I, they didn't have to deal with some of the stuff we were dealing with. But then, you know, when things really, really got stormy, and I would say when he turned 18, it got very scary. We had a community of friends and people in ministry and just those that, that knew us intimately that walked with us for the next 10 years. And they loved my son and they prayed faithfully and daily for my son and for us. So for the most part, it was very positive, John. That's really good to hear. Sometimes the experiences are not quite so positive, but you described eventually that Benjamin wound up incarcerated. Yeah. And so you were walking through the valley of the shadow of death for quite a few years before that happened. And the valley just kept getting darker and darker till eventually the worst possible thing for a mother you know, yeah. to have happen. And so what was going on inside your mind? Uh, how did you manage all that? How did you come through that valley? Well, I'll tell you what was going through my mind for a lot of those years is where the heck are you, God? I'm praying a million people that love us and love Ben are praying and things aren't getting better. They're getting worse. 
And I just got to the point where I realized that this is not going to be like fast food in and out. This is going to be a long process of walking with God and just taking it one day at a time and one step at a time and seeking him the whole time. So how I got through it is I didn't walk through the valley of the shadow of death. I crawled. I was on my knees before the Lord all the time, daily. If God saves all of our tears, I hate to see what kind of container he's got my tears in. <laughs> well, scripture says he does. So I'll, uh, yeah. I'll, I'll gawk with you at the size of it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, it started out with petty stuff. I mean, he was stealing from us. He was stealing my jewelry and pawning it to get drug money. He was stealing money from his father. He was just progressively moving toward what I feared, and that is ending up in jail. And so how that happened is the drugs, drug use escalated, and he went from smoking pot to using oxycodone and PCP and who knows what else. He developed an addiction to oxy, and I had kicked him out of the house at that point because I told him, you're not going to do drugs and be involved in illegal activity and live in our house. That just isn't going to happen. So he hadn't been gone long, maybe about three days, and he wanted to come home. And he was very sick. And I said, you have to agree to going to checking yourself into a rehab. And I think he was 17 at the time, 17 or, or just turning 18 that year. He very reluctantly agreed to rehab and it was a local rehab. And I have a lot of mixed feelings about them because most of them are court ordered and you don't really have people in there wanting to get free from drugs. And it was in that rehab that he met a gang leader. And long story short, he got initiated into this gang. And Benjamin was 17 turning 18, but mentally he was maybe 13 or 14 at best. He was very naive. He was very young. He was just, he wanted to belong. He wanted to find an identity and he felt like an outcast. He didn't feel like he belonged anywhere. He didn't belong with his Jewish friends because he was Messianic. And, you know, he would tell his Jewish friends, you can't be Jewish unless you believe in the Jewish Messiah. And that would get him in trouble. And I try to explain to him, honey, you just can't really say that to people. And, and then, you know, his non-Jewish friends, they didn't believe in God at all. And so he just couldn't find a place. And so he got initiated into this gang and we didn't know anything about it, had no idea. And one day I was at work and my husband called me and he said, you better sit down. And I said, what's going on? He said, Benjamin's been arrested. 
and uh, they picked him up at our house. And, you know, it, that moment, I'll never forget that day. I just very atypical of me just said, oh, okay. Um, well, I knew that was going to happen. And I hung up and I went back to what I was doing at work. I would usually just fall apart, but I didn't. I just went back to work doing what I was doing. And, and then I remember the day of his arraignment. First of all, he got arrested for conspiring to commit armed robbery. Now, Benjamin did not have a weapon. He didn't own a weapon. There wasn't a weapon on him. He arranged a drug deal with uh, a couple of other 18-year-old kids that he knew from school, and they were meeting at some place, and there was going to be an exchange. Well, one of the gang members was with them. And he had, I don't know, did he have a gun or a knife? But anyway, he ended up getting in a fight with one of the kids that was dealing and broke his jaw, robbed those two kids, took all their money, watches, phones, everything, and left. So it was Ben, the gang member, and in the book, I call him the man. He had a, a nickname he went by, but I don't use it. He's probably still in jail, but I, I don't know for sure. And then another kid, another high school kid that Ben knew. And so the gang member got away and the other kid pinned the whole thing on Ben. And so they charged him with conspiracy to commit armed robbery and with no priors and coming from a a decent family and church going family and all of that, they gave him 18 months. And the kid that struck a plea bargain with the DA got 30 days in jail. So I don't want to bring race into it, but my late husband was African American. My Both my kids are mixed and course, we feel very strongly that the judicial system can be biased. And so I think some of that was at play. I remember in the courtroom when Ben stood before the judge and the sentence. And when I heard 18 months, it was like the lights went out in my life. I could not believe it. I could not believe how severe the punishment was. I, I didn't know what to do with that. And so I cried and I cried for quite a long time. And Ben actually spent 19 months in jail. And I'm not going to talk about the story now, but there is a story I tell in my book, Valley Life, about... Ben going to the pre-release center, he was in jail for about a year, 12 months, and then on good behavior was sent to the pre-release center. And then on good behavior there, they send you home on house arrest. You know, they put the ankle bracelet on you and 
And so what happened was, is the day that Ben was supposed to come home, his supervisor was at our house wiring all the equipment that would monitor Ben's coming and going. My husband was at the pre-release center picking him up and they were just taking forever. And then I got the call. And the call is that they found contraband in Ben's room and with no discussion, he was arrested and immediately sent back to jail and was sentenced to an additional 30 months for that infraction. It wasn't drugs, but it was something that wasn't allowed in the pre-release center. And Ben knew that. So I tell this story of why God orchestrated Ben going back to jail. Because, and and I'm speaking to your listeners right now, even though I'd been in ministry for many, many years and a counselor and talked about God's faithfulness and his grace and how we can trust him, this was a very difficult thing for me because I did not understand. First of all, I didn't understand why the child that God promised me ended up being like this. And, you know, why me? And, you know, when bad things happen, a lot of us say that, why me? And then I didn't understand why God would allow him to go back to jail with all the prayer that was being lifted up for this child. He would have to go back there. And I was ticked. Yeah, I I can imagine that. God let you down, really. Oh, my gosh. I felt completely abandoned by God. And it took me a couple of days of wallowing in my anger and depression when I finally snapped out of it and remembered the truth. And the truth is, is that I may not understand the whys in life. And I don't need to know the whys in life. All I need to know is that my God is loving and faithful. And there is a reason Even if I never know what that reason is, there is a reason. And Lord, I'm going to trust you with this. And that's exactly what I did. The day Ben got out of jail, I found out why God orchestrated this event for him to get arrested and go back to jail. And I have to tell you. Yeah, please. I'm on the edge of my seat. What happened? Well, I'm not going to tell you what it is. You have to read Valley Life. Oh, gosh. What a hook. It's on audio as well. But I'm telling you that event rocked my world to the extent that I don't know that there's anything that I could not experience that the grace of God would not be enough for me. It is grew me and brought me to a place of trust with God like I had never known. And I was a mature Christian. I'd been walking with the Lord a long, long time. And and your listeners should know this. Just because you're walking with the Lord a long, long time does not mean you trust him with everything. That's for sure. Yeah, it's a process. 
and one that I was growing and learning in. So this, this event, you know, when my son told me the story, we were in the, sitting in the car and I couldn't even speak. I just sat there and the tears just rolled off my face. And suddenly every single thing in the last 18 months, 19 months made perfect sense to me. And it changed me and it changed me so much so that, let's see, this was in 2010 and Ben was not at the end of himself yet. We thought he might be, but, you know, some things happened and it just took him back to the gutter. But in 2014, he decided he was done. He was done with the drugs. He was done with living the way he'd been living. And we had offered to send him to an out-of-state inpatient recovery place um, that we would pay for uh, if he ever got to that place that he, he just wanted to change his life. And so he contacted me one day and said, you know, is that all for good? I can't do this anymore. And so he went to a place in Tennessee and he was only there for two months and he'd done really well, exceptionally well. They, you know, everybody there said he was like their model client Every therapy he would attend, every chapel he would attend. I mean, it was just amazing. And Ben loved it and he loved the results. And, you know, the real Benjamin began to emerge. He had lost himself in all these years and God helped him find himself there. And it was during that stay that I found out that my husband was diagnosed with a terminal brain tumor. Oh my. And that was kind of a double whammy, you know? So, but what I went through with Ben and why God not only allowed him to go back to jail and finish out his sentence, but I absolutely believe that God orchestrated the whole thing. Even though Ben made choices, God knew what those choices were going to be, that that's what prepared me to walk through 10 months of hell with my husband and the fear of how this was going to impact Benjamin and then his death and how I would live my life as a 60-year-old single woman who actually had only been married. I didn't really know what it was like to live alone and, and be single. And so that in itself is an amazing story for those who have lost a spouse or lost a child. That was what I expected. I expected to bury my son not my husband. Wow. Well, Yolanda, what an incredible testimony you gave. And usually we end these podcasts with uh, the last word of encouragement that you gave, that you can give to our listeners, but man, you've already given it. And so thank you so much, Pastor Frank, any last comments before we 
wrap this episode up. And it looks like there's more to the story. So perhaps a future episode might bring you back one more time, Miss Yolanda. <laughs> Frank, yeah. any last comments? What an incredible, mind-blowing story. Well, you know, John, um, the, I had a couple thoughts come to mind. I think a lot of people in the church communicate, not purposely, but a spirit of triumphalism. You know, the fact that we kind of float through life as Christians and, you know, that's, that's not true. Mm -hmm. We are perfect in Christ, completing Christ, filled with Christ, but we live in a very dark world. Mm -hmm. And so we, the message of the Bible and Yolanda did so well today is not necessarily that we get victory over our circumstances, but victory in them that he is so real so powerful so strong so faithful uh, that we walk through the deepest waters but the key is we're walking mm -hmm. we're getting through it with our hands in his and his in ours and him telling us you know he tells us in his word mm -hmm. i will be your strength because yeah. you know our strength isn't sufficient for those things and Yolanda, you did such a good job telling of how you found God's strength. Mm -hmm. And the other thing, you mentioned the tears in a bottle. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I was studying that passage recently, and I, I had that text just leap off at me. Mm -hmm. He says that he stores them in his bottle. Mm -hmm. He takes possession of our tears. Mm -hmm. And that is so powerful for me to ponder. They're not my tears anymore. They are. They're his. But they're his. Mm -hmm. And he gets it. You know, he, he, he's that sympathetic high priest. There's a sense in which when we're going through that stuff, we're, we cry out, nobody understands. And that's true maybe for the world, the planet, the people. But God says, I understand. Wow. And, and I'm yours and you're mine. And we'll get through this together. Wow. What an encouraging word. Thank you so much, Yolanda. Thank you so much, Pastor Frank. And listeners, thanks again for joining us here on the Our Resolute Hope podcast. We know we went a little long today, but we think it was worth it. And our prayer is that as we go through this series of the power of story, that these stories will open your eyes to see your Lord and Savior as you've never seen him before, working miracles in people's lives that you never even thought possible. Check us out on our website, www.ourresolutehope.com. You'll find more resources there. Search out our social media channels. And as always, uh, as Yolanda told us, when things look really dark and you're in the valley of the shadow of death and it doesn't seem to be ending and you've given up walking and you're crawling, don't give up ever. Yeah. Put your hand in the saviors. We encourage you always to choose hope, to choose Jesus. Thanks for listening. We trust that you've seen Jesus today and you know that no matter what you're facing, he offers you himself, his own life, he wants to live his life with you, in you, and through you as you trust him and walk by faith in this troubled world. You've been listening to Our Resolute Hope Podcast. For more information, find us online at OurResoluteHope.com and check out our social media channels under the name Our Resolute Hope.